Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Confident in telling you that we are tagged out, because I just smoked that deer. Nice shot. It's been really tough hunting, to be honest with you. You're listening to the Scree Country Podcast. All right, November's known all around the country or a lot of the country as it's kind of the whitetail month, right? So um, we've all been out doing a lot of whitetail hunting. We're going to talk whitetail hunting today. Um, Nate, Josh, and Mike from Scree are on with me. You guys say hello. How's it going? What's up, man? Introduce yourself. This is, like, podcasting is audio, so you guys got to say, hey, I'm Nate with the really super cool mullet. I'm Josh. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm Mike. <laughs> so that you can identify way, your voice. So, yeah, hey, uh, screw, screw team here. We just got back from Canada. Uh, Mike here. Josh Nelson. And I'm Nate Barker. Nate the Great. So these guys are actually in the office at Scree. Um, I think it'd be cool you guys just kind of – Start out by just talking about what you do for the company. What, what what is your what's your job at Scree? Okay, well this is this is Josh Nielsen speaking. I um, if you've ordered from us or called in, you might have talked to me. I handle a lot of our phone calls and emails, um, and I also work with our outfitters and pro staff. Um, it's been a super awesome year so far. We've been really busy, so if we've um, Missed an order, had a little mistake on our part. We apologize, and we appreciate you for bearing with us and, and ordering a bunch of gear. It's been an awesome year so far, and it's what you guys make it all possible. Nate, what do you do? Yeah, so uh, technically my title is Director of Operations. Um, I just help oversee you know, order fulfillment and customer service and jump in and help uh, where I can in that. I also um, work hand-in-hand with some of our international partners um, and our, our international dealers and, you know, a lot of that stuff as well, so. 
Very cool. And, and when my, they're not doing that lock, they're like all of us. They're yeah. out hunting. I was going to say. So if you can't get a hold of these guys, there's a good chance that they're out on a hunt. Both these guys have actually, both these guys have had a heck of a lot better year than me I and had. you. So I might me and you. The co- and the- let all you successful guys <laughs> talk. Well, th- th- don't want me in that because I haven't had any success this year. Well, I'm, I'm in their, I'm playing on their team. It's, it's our year to. To, to sit one out but that's what happens when you host a podcast you start having to talk to people that do kill stuff yeah not, not depressing <laughs> ain't it <laughs> um well i was gonna say you know screes screes spent uh an enormous effort in building the company around customer service and stuff so it's a the fact that we do all go out and hunt and stuff you know it's a challenge to keep all that covered and that's like one of the, the topics that we really want to talk about on this episode is Talking about a couple of hunts we've been, I mentioned that November's whitetail, kind of the the whitetail month. Um, it's it's I guess it's really not in parts of the country, but you know just from a public perception, it is whether it's the hottest month for whitetail hunting in every state. It is at least kind of in the center of it, and what I mean by that is uh, when you get into the South, November is really early actually, um, where most people are. At some point in the month of November, from from Canada all the way down uh, into the Midwest, at some point in November you're 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 chasing the rut, you know. And there's entire video series and uh, and things out there with November in the title. It's such a prominent month, but in the South, it's kind of the lull because what happens is our seasons are so liberal and so long, so many days of opportunity that. In October, you start getting a lot of hunting with early season. Everything opens in October. So by November, we don't have a rut cycle yet. And, and, but you, what you do have is you've implemented a ton of human pressure in the woods for a solid month. And you're still probably a month out from that kind of change of seasons in, in the deer season, so to speak, the deer's uh, life, life cycle for their rut activity so they're feeling a ton of pressure but they don't have that motivation to really move to get up and move and do rut activity so but nevertheless it's still kind of the middle of the hunting season so it's prominent on everybody's mind for us midwest uh midwest whitetail hunting is is obviously a a big thing and i just spent a week in kansas and you just guys you guys just got back from a, a hunt that i guess this is your second year to go to canada yeah, for some of us, for Nate and I, second year, Josh, it was his first year. So, so uh, I want to I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Nate's been hunting with me before, and uh, I know um, I think Mike, you've done some other whitetail hunting. So I want you guys to just kind of talk a little bit about the Canada hunt, how it differs from other whitetail hunts you've done. And I, I know Canadian whitetail hunting is something uh, I'm, that. I would say is pretty known in that you know you can find videos and hunts online and 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 on uh, outdoor television people hunting in Canada, but I don't think it's near widely as participated in as some of like Texas and the Midwest and stuff like that. So, what what are your like Nate and Mike specifically? Josh, have you ever done any whitetail hunting outside of this? Or was this your first? This is my first one. So for you guys, Nate and Mike, like what what are the what are the big differences between your other whitetail experiences and the Canada experience? Yeah, so I mean, I, 
like you said, Locke, I've been out, uh, you know, in the Midwest with you a couple of times, Nebraska, Missouri and such. And uh, there's definitely a difference um, in the hunting between there as well as up in Canada. You know, you're sitting, sitting tree stands over, you know, breaks in a cornfield or you're sitting over, um, you know, travel highways where deer are coming through, checking scrapes and all sorts of stuff. You know, sometimes you can see a lot of, a lot of country. Some other times you can't. Um, but in the, up in Canada, it's, it's, it's completely different ball game. You're sitting in the middle of a forest, you're hunting these bush bucks where there's, there's miles and miles of thick forest. And you may, you may be in a 10 foot wide shooting lane, 10 by, or a, a 10 yard by 60 yard shooting lane. And you're just waiting for, for deer and bucks to come cruising through there. Uh, you know, you're over bait, um, and you know, deer rutting or as we'll probably get into this year, they, they weren't really rutting when we were up there, but, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely differences, um, a few similarities, but I don't know. What, what are your thoughts, Mike? Well, I would, I would concur. I mean, <clears throat> it's totally different in that respect because in Canada, I mean, w- where we were hunting, which, you know, Saskatchewan, you know, the lower Southern part of the States, basically very similar to the Midwest or even kind of really kind of like the, the Dakotas. Um, if you've hunted the, the Dakotas, it's just kind of rolling grain fields and there's coolies and stuff. But as you get more to the, the middle Northern half of Saskatchewan, it's the boreal forest, right? It's, it's timber and Aspen and, um, you know, a lot of hazel brush. I mean, it's super, super thick and really it's, it's not super productive in this area to hunt, you know, to hunt ag fields. There are ag fields there. There are deer out in the ag fields, but as soon as the snow flies and you get any kind of amount of snow that the deer, you know, the deer kind of hit the, you know, more actively hit the, hit the bay piles. And so it's really, it's really how they hunt in Saskatchewan during the rut. And as you know, man, I mean, like last year when we hunted Canada, we, I mean, as soon as we landed and, and started heading to camp, I mean, we immediately recognized, dude, there's, there's a bunch of snow there. Like there was, I don't know, what would you say, Nate? There had to been well over a foot, like well yeah. over a foot of snow on the ground. And so what happens is you've, you've covered up all the, the feed sources, you know, the ag fields. And in this part of Saskatchewan, there's not nearly the amount of ag fields that there is in the, in the southern portion of Saskatchewan. So it really pushes those deers, those deer into the wooded areas, the wooded thickets. And, and at that point, you're just dependent on the rut and snow. This year, I saw virtually no rutting activity. I don't know. Josh and, and Nate can comment on that, but I, I saw virtually no rutting activity and we had no snow on the ground. In fact, it was, it sucked because literally when I climbed out of the blind on Saturday to head home, it started to snow and proceeded to dump over two feet in the next couple days. And so obviously weather, and I, I think that's where um, the Midwest and Saskatchewan, really across Canada, 
is very similar in that respect. When you have cold weather, those deer are on their feet um, during daylight hours and they're up and moving and they're dogging does. Last year, I saw a lot of the, of course, we were hunting third, was it about the second week or third week? What was uh, the third week? It, well, so we, we were hunting about the 15th of, yeah. of uh, we were there about the, we started hunting about the 15th of November and bucks were dogging does. We had snow on the ground. Um, and we had a, a lot higher success rate last year than we did this year. We still killed some great bucks, but I don't know. You guys, Josh, Nate, you guys have anything to add to that? I think, I think you covered that pretty, pretty well. So I'm, I'm assuming, because uh, so in my world, especially in the South, but even in the Midwest, a lot of times snow is not a good thing. That's like too far on the cold spectrum it almost puts a shock into the you know i mean you never have a situation in the south or at least during this time of the year even in the midwest where you have two foot of snow that's there to stay you may get a a front move through and it may dump snow that hangs around for a day and a half but it's you know it's not gonna stay it's not like part of the environment for an extended period of time and in my experience, and, and, and some other people with other experiences uh, that are different may balk at what I'm going to say, but in my experience, a lot of times when you get that November snow, which never happens in the south, but when we get it in, in December down here, it almost shocks the deer to the point that they don't know what, they, they got act completely different. You know, what you really want is that high-pressure cold front, little frost on the ground, and um, you know, rising barometric pressures, blue skies. Um, it doesn't even have to be blue skies as long as you get the rising barometric pressure. And the cold makes the deer, you know, really move, become very visible, and I think that makes the rut activity more visible. But it seems to me, just in what you guys are saying, in the style of hunting that you're doing, the snow almost forces the deer into a pattern that makes them more visible for that style of hunt. Because if you don't have snow and you're in, I mean, I know Nate, Nate has, uh, you've never deer hunted down here with me, but you came down here and stayed at my place one time in the summer and we did a, a pig hunt. And so you spent a little bit of time, it's pretty thick here too. I don't know how that compares to what you guys are seeing, but you know, we have some very large expanses of thick timbered forest, woods, forest, different stages, um, as far as uh, timber harvest and stuff like that, but um, when you when you have conditions early in the season, and I'm, I'm kind of comparing this to, to to you guys being out of character with the amount of with the lack of snow, it can be really hard to hunt because the deer are very spread and they don't have to go very far to browse and eat. They don't have to move very far. I mean, they're in a thick wooded area and there's browse literally growing all over the place. And there's actually a book that was produced, um, I say produced, uh, uh, written and um, published by a friend of mine here in Louisiana who's a former uh, Department of Wildlife and Fisheries uh, deer manager. And it's called like the, um, it's got a really long name, but it's like a checklist of all the different browse plants that deer eat. And you would not even believe, I mean, like you would think that would be like a white paper, right? This is an entire book of of plants that a deer will eat and when you look at that and you realize 
there's literally every step they take, there's something that they will eat in in our forest, things that you don't even think about. Um, and so when you – I'm guessing in, in y'all's situation in Canada where when you get the snow that stays, it kind of forces the deer into those open areas that have been set up. You have, you have bait there. You have cleared areas where you've got more browse growing, and they can access it better because um, of the snowfall. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, up there you really rely on, on the snow and covering their feed. Otherwise, they like you were saying, they have you know free roam. They can find food other places. Um, whereas with that snow, and especially you get more and more snow um, that just covers all the feed. They really rely. It, it, it's a they they go into survival mode. You know, trying to to find anything they can eat and hit those bait piles just to just to stay alive in the winter. Yeah, and so you really do rely on on the weather up there. I know. Well, and, I, and to that point too, Locke, is I remember <clears throat> one of the nights when I was in camp and I was visiting with the outfitter and he had talked about he was heading back to camp and saw 40 deer out in the ag fields. And he's like, that's not a good thing, you know? Yeah. And I, I definitely personally saw significantly more deer this year than last year. I mean, again, last year, lots of snow. This year, there was no snow. Um, and so it was just interesting to see how, you know, the, the, the behavior of the animals, because there is, there's, you know, they can, there's those ag fields and they're, they're mostly stubble, but there's obviously a lot of nutrition in, in that stubble. There's still a lot of feed on the ground. And like you said, even when they step into the forest, there's a lot of, a lot of different browse. I mean, good grief, even on a bad, bad year, like, I don't know about deer, but elk, they'll, they'll strip they'll eat the bark right off a tree. Uh, I mean, yeah. they'll, they'll completely annihilate a tree. So, um, so for sure, I think that's the biggest difference. I mean, it's a totally different, you know, uh, they just, they don't hunt a lot of tree stands. It's mainly, mainly ground blinds over, over bait. And I, having hunted this year, the first week of November, as opposed to, you know, the, the middle of the month, um, made a big difference man for for me i i think i would definitely elect to hunt later in saskatchewan maybe even the week before thanksgiving or week after but i don't know they the crazy thing is last year for the first week in november they hammered some of their biggest bucks so i don't know it's it's, it's hard to say and you know at the end of the day these are wild animals and the daggum things for no apparent reason they just they 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 do what they do and you you, you know, you think you got them figured out, and you 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 just don't, you know. So, well, it was, uh, you know, I I can tell a similar story in terms of just the rut from, you know, what I experienced in Kansas this year, and um, I've I've hunted the Midwest rut in a variety of date ranges from October the twenty seventh all the way through the week before Thanksgiving, you know, being all the way up around November the 20th. And I think last year I killed a deer in Missouri on the 11th, and then I killed a deer in Kansas on the 14th, you know, and it was, um, that was, and I was, uh, the whole time I, I, I was doing this trip, the whole time I thought I was going to be late. I thought I was going to be in a lockdown phase where all the big bucks were locked down with those and not really moving much. 
Um, because really what you want is you want to hit that sweet spot um, in between. You know, you want them to be very active, but you don't want it to be where there's too many does in estrus because that can be a really miserable time to hunt the rut because uh, unless you're hunting in open country where you can find those deer that are bedded down somewhere with a doe and they're going to stay with her for up to 48 hours until they breed her, they're not going to move around. They'll literally lay out in the middle of an open CRP field for 48 hours with that doe and not move more than 100 yards. Um, you want to hit that spot those few days before there's enough does actually receptive that they're having to move and follow the does and they're having to travel and find those does that are ready to lock down in the breeding cycle. So it's it's really, like you said, they're wild animals and and. I think that there's so many variables that come into play. I hunted, I've hunted a lot of the a lot of times in the first week of November in in the Midwest and had a ton of success. And and honestly, when it comes to the stuff that we really all want to experience with the rut, that's cruising bucks and bucks that are responsive to calling. Um, that window of opportunity is the most exciting whitetail hunting there is, in my opinion, and I think probably shared by most people. Um, you can get the most out of your hunt because you can, you know, I mean, obviously you can go sit all day anywhere if you choose to. Um, and by law of averages, the numbers are going to be with you in that regard. But during that time, it's a really productive thing because the deer really don't bed up that much. They move constantly because they're constantly searching for those does. And then when you do see a deer in that phase, it's it's a, a legitimate chance for you to get a deer into bow range or whatever weapon range that you're hunting with um, with calling because they're very receptive because that's, you know, that's where their mind's at. Uh, this year in Kansas, we saw none of that, none, like – we hunted nine days, and we saw one buck that was, he was big. Don't get me wrong. He was a really big buck. But he was the only one that was, I mean, we didn't even see outside of spikes and little corn, you know, one-and-a-half-year-old deer. We didn't see any of those two- and three-year-old small rack bucks out trying to get a jump start, following does around, cruising. Usually always see that in the weeks leading up. We didn't even see that. The scrapes going in and out of where we were hunting, the scrapes were just random. Every now and then you'd see a fresh one. We had one night where the temperatures got pretty good, and it rained a little bit, and it was like a flurry of activity, and all the, the scrapes got freshened and then dead for the five days following that. And um, so, yeah. Go ahead. So talk, talk to me about scrapes a little bit. That's so, so the area that I was hunting this year, um, I was hunting a specific buck that had been frequenting it. I mean, he was, he was basically nocturnal, nocturnal. He was a big, big buck and, uh, he never did, never did show up during daylight hours. However, there were literally, we counted over seven scrapes within a, I don't know, 50 yard radius of, of the blind. Yeah. Um, what, what does that typically indicate in terms of, of the rut? Is that kind of a pre-rut? I, I think it's it, kind of a, it's a year round thing. It's just the actual freshening of the scrapes on the ground are a prominent thing during, 
uh, peak phases of the rut. Like so, a scrape is it, it, it's a it's an it's a territorial thing for bucks, but it's also a way that they communicate. And and what's important with with a scrape is the licking branch that's that's almost always above it. You know they 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 lick and there's a gland in the side of their nose face that they rub on that and that's kind of how they communicate and so a buck freshens that scrape and he comes back and checks it because the does will check it and that's kind of like as i've always been told that's kind of the buck's way of knowing where the does are in that area are at because they're going to come by and they're going to leave their scent in that scrape and he's going to check it on a regular basis so you know the natural way to in in my mind the natural way to uh to look at that situation is as the activity increases he starts to check it more often where um whereas uh, if the does aren't really they're not really ready or there's not very many of them getting to that point then the activity is going to be slower maybe once a day kind of thing maybe during the night kind of thing and then at some point his focus is going to go completely to those, and the scrapes are going to kind of have served their purpose. But those areas, maybe not all seven of those in that area of the blind, but there's going to be primary community scraping and licking locations everywhere. And the deer use them year-round, and that's kind of how one of the ways they communicate with each other, kind of know who's in the area and, and, and that kind of thing. That's how I've always learned it. The, the increase in scraping activity as a hunter, if you're out in the woods – trying to observe and strategize what's going on in the deer herd, the increase in scraping activity as far as freshening those scrapes up and really pawing the ground, that is just a buck's increase in testosterone and territorialism and his just in increased, increasing his activity. And so you can logically deduce at that point, at some point he's going to start daylighting because he's doing this more often, more often, more often as he's starting to smell and sense that there's does beginning to come in estrus. And then um, I think scraping is also, there's a sliding scale to it, depending on your your uh, your overall deer herd in your area. Um, like with everything else, the more bucks in the area, the more territorial they are. So the more they're going to do all of these activities, the more responsive to calling they're going to be because they're on high alert in, in, in um, you know, uh, competing with the other bucks in the area same thing with scraping activity um i know like down here in the south there's areas down here in the south where obviously we have fawns every year we have a thriving deer herd so there's deer breeding but you just really don't see much scrape activity at all and that's because you don't have a real robust deer herd and you don't have a ton of competition in age structure of bucks so they don't have to do all that as much because they don't have as much competition for their does so that's, you know, the scraping thing is just one thing to help you kind of gain some knowledge on where the deer are in their rut cycle. Um, so, so if you, so if you have, you know, if you were, you know, if you had this, this blind that you're hunting and you, there's a couple scrapes and then in, you know, the next day there's more and then even more, I mean, is that, that means that he's obviously be becoming more active and you feel like that the, the chances are increasing of him yeah daylighting that's that's how i that's how i take it and then there's yeah and then you run into a situation where if you know there's other things that are going to happen if you're spending time you know if you're on a hunt or 
you're in an area where maybe it's a local property that you go and access regularly or you're there hunting every day for a week or something there's other things happening in the woods that are gonna um that are gonna play into it but at some point you're gonna start seeing he's gonna kind of maybe not abandon the scrapes but he's gonna start tailing off of that because he's gonna be with does he's actually going to be following does around or searching for them or locked down with them so the really pronounced scraping activity is a window in time and it's it's something that that hunters look for because like you just said what it does is it kind of it kind of clues you into the idea that okay he's he's starting to sense that the rut's coming that there could be does going into estrus anytime now and he is creating more of these scrape locations or keeping more of them fresh because he's trying he is desperately trying to find the first doe that's going to go into estrus and eventually be receptive for breeding. Is there any is there any advantage? One thing we were talking to this outfitter, and it sounds like they don't do a lot of of, of calling and a lot of rattling. I mean, would, would there would there be any harm in trying to rattle in a buck like that, or maybe do a little bit of light calling, a little grunting at that time of year if he's got a bunch of active scrapes? Is there any? I mean, is there a, yeah. you know, with elk, man, you got to be careful because if you call too much, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll actually scare them off. It's a hard thing. And it's, you know, it, it is, there are parts of the country that I just wouldn't advise anybody to call ever because deer just aren't real receptive to it. One of the things, you know, from my point of view that makes hunting whitetails rutting whitetails specifically in the midwest so attractive is that in that part of the world the deer are super responsive to calling you come down here in louisiana mississippi georgia alabama the deep south and i'm not saying that calling doesn't work but it's just a hit or miss proposition and to your point you definitely can do more harm than good and then you know there's places in texas and in the midwest where you're kind of crazy on certain times of the year. You're kind of crazy if you don't have calls with you because there's, you know, it's just such a productive tactic. And I think some of that has to do with deer density and how the deer are positioned on the landscape. And, and really what I mean by that is you look at Canada and the south and you can kind of correlate those two with large expanses of thick forest that are hard for you to really access without disturbing them and then you take ag country in the midwest and your deer are are all confined to small wood blocks uh hedgerows creek bottoms because there's just huge open fields and not that they don't walk in those fields but obviously they don't just walk out in those fields and lay out in the wide open all the time so they're more confined those deer are more they're more in competition with each other in every aspect of life. They can't spread out, right? So you're going to have a lot of vocalization in terms of, of the deer competing with each other uh, in, the, in the rut cycle. So from a time of the year perspective, I guess to kind of circle back to your question, from a time of the year perspective, that is the time of the year that calling should work because the way it's going to work is these deer are going to be competing with each other, kind of setting up that hierarchy of who is the dominant buck in the area, 
and, and that sort of thing in preparation for the does to start coming into estrus. And when, when the does do start coming into estrus, everything changes because that buck that is the dominant buck, I've had this happen more times than not. I had it happen to this, you know, just this past, this past week in Kansas. That dominant buck, when he does walk out there with a doe, you got to pretty much hope the doe comes past you because he's not leaving her. You know, right. no matter how dominant he is, you can rattle and grunt and snort wheeze, and you can challenge him and be as realistic and do everything right, and he just simply has the real thing right in front of him. He can smell her, he can see her, she's right there, and he's not going to leave her. But that week or two before that doe gets to that, that stage, his whole life revolves around finding her. And if he's... You know, he can be much more receptive to that calling because those kind of vocalizations and things, they're happening um, in response to those coming in. So he hears that and he responds to it because uh, of just what's going on. So I, I can't speak because I've never hunted in Canada, but I would think that if it was going to work, then that, you know, that time of the year where they're scraping activity and maybe they've got cameras that are seeing some some things at night, but but you're having to really grind it out for daylight movement, um, that might be the time that calling works. And even more so, if you're sitting in that blind and you can only see a limited area, and that buck's not really focused on feeding, but you get a glimpse of him at the end of that shooting lane, and he crosses it because he's just moving through, scent checking every area looking for a doe, that might be the time that you can call at him and get him to come back out and give you an opportunity, you know, because that's what he's searching for. You know, so right. that's my take and I, on it. And I think, too, to that point, you know, these big bucks and two, you know, back-to-back years, I was hunting some pretty big, mature bucks, and they were just, they were nocturnal. And I feel like, I feel like your window to kill those, and when I talk about big bucks, I'm talking about deer that have had five or six or seven seasons under their belt. I mean, they're, they're kind of at the, the, the top of the, the, the food chain and that in that regard they're they're just super hard to kill and i think you have a fairly short window mm-hmm. you know to to capitalize and you know it's just so it's so different you know nate and josh and i we're all you know we're all mule deer hunters and so this this has kind of been a fun adventure nate and josh both killed uh great bucks josh killed a really nice non-typical um buck um, Nate killed a great, just a, just a great all around deer as well. So maybe I could have Josh and Nate kind of comment just, you know, the, the, the difference in maybe some of the, um, some of the, the, the differences that you guys notice between hunting, hunting mule deer in the West and, and whitetail. I mean, for Josh, it was his first time and Josh and I, Josh, it's been a good year for Josh. He killed a big mule deer up in the high country and, um, physicality wise, we had to work a lot harder for that, that, uh, that mule deer, but I'll tell you what, there's, there's something to be said of enduring 10 days yeah. in the blind. Josh, Nate, what, what do you guys think? What are some of the, what are some of the, the similarities and the, the differences, maybe some things you learned that, that, uh, um, kind of relate to mule deer hunting or that make it totally different. Yeah, so I think for me the biggest uh, the biggest difference is um, you know hunting mule deer. You're you're hiking around, you're sitting at glassing points, and uh, you're going out and, and finding the deer 
um, or, or trying to find the deer and then, and then making plans and, uh, to get them killed. And it can be physically exhausting, um, you know, depending on, on how far you're hiking or, uh, you know, spending all day away from camp, um, you know, ridge hopping or, or doing whatever you're doing. But, um, whitetail is a, a completely different grind and it's very, uh, emotionally and mentally draining i mean sitting there for hours and hours on end um and sometimes without even seeing deer uh you know on on this recent hunt that we we're on in canada i i saw two does after let's see was it i think it was about seven hours in on my first day i saw two does that was the first time that i saw any deer uh until I killed my buck about three hours later, but I mean, some of you guys were grinding it out day after day, hardly seeing anything for, you know, 10, 11 hours each day. And that, that really starts to, starts to mess with you. Mm-hmm. I think, whereas as mule deer, uh, or on a mule deer hunt, it's, it can be, you know, emotionally and mentally draining as well. But I think, uh, a lot of it is more, more physical aspect of it and i think uh josh can attest to that because he had a a pretty physical physically demanding hunt in colorado this year yeah yeah for sure i i I agree with everything that nate said like like you mentioned i went on a hunt in colorado and it was the first time i'd ever been in this area and it was about an eight or nine hour drive away from home so we didn't really have any time to go and scout it and so with that hunt, we were in an area not knowing what was there. And it was mentally challenging because we didn't know what was there and we were wondering if there was a buck at all. But with the white tail, it's a completely opposite. You know that the buck is there because you got trail cam pictures of him, but you're hunting for, for days and you're not seeing him. So it's kind of a, a little swap that you make there. But yeah, with with my hunt, I was actually pretty fortunate to to kill within the first few hours. And uh, I think the hardest part of my hunt, honestly, was just the 23 hour drive from <laughs> from headquarters to Saskatchewan. But yeah, like Nate said, there was a bunch of us there and it was disheartening for me to have guys come back to camp at night. And I think there was one guy that killed on the second to last day and it was the second deer he'd seen the whole week. He'd done over 40 hours in the blind and seen one doe and then the buck that he killed. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's one thing is, you know, you, you don't kill anything until you finally do. They, they just pop up out of nowhere and all that waiting just pays off in a few seconds. Yeah, it, it is. I think you put it well, Nate, in, in, in the sense that it's mentally exhausting because specifically we talk about, you know, for me, when I'm here at home, I can walk out my office door and jump on my side-by-side or even walk and go get in the deer stand and hunt. And if I just don't feel like the conditions are right, I can just walk back up to the house and do something else and, and whatever. But when we go on these trips, like you guys are in Canada or when I go up to the Midwest, you've got five or six days or, or whatever your trip is, and you know that the right – whether the conditions are just right – or not you know that the right decision is to grind it out because you don't i mean these are wild animals and even though 
the odds may be stacked against you. Um, it's the one time that I will subscribe to the that like I, I I very adamantly and vocally do not subscribe to the idea that you can't kill them from the couch because I think that is a very lazy when it comes to whitetail hunting. That's a very lazy excuse for not putting in the kind of effort it requires to hunt smart and hunt with a plan because you can't kill them from the couch but when you hunt in heavily wooded areas you can absolutely affect yourself in a negative way throughout the season by blowing out your hunting spots by just going and sitting in the woods when the odds aren't with you the wind's blowing the wrong way the deer are probably not on your feet but you're hunting an area where you know the deer are there and you're sitting there with your scent blowing everywhere, and you're just going to make it more difficult for yourself. But when you go on these trips, you have a, def- a defined period of time, and the mental part of it is you know that the best choice is to sit there because at any given time, that one doe could be up moving around somewhere and pull that buck by you or whatever the case may be, but it's mentally draining when you're not seeing deer or you're not seeing the kind of activity you expect to see to sit there and keep yourself motivated because, you know, like Josh, you were talking about the trail cams and stuff, and that's pretty common in the whitetail world is where you're hunting, whether it's with an outfitter or your own property that you're managing. It's pretty common these days. You kind of have a decent inventory of what's around there, and you know that deer's there, but it's like people refer to it. It's like hunting a ghost. You know, it's it, you can't go get on a, a spot and scope or go glass and find him and kind of figure out, well, I can't kill him because he's doing this, but I know he's there. You don't even know he's there unless the trail camera sends you a picture and you sit there for a week and you never, and you're just like, it's, it truly is like hunting a ghost. And it's, uh, it's mentally draining very much. So, so that's, well, uh, patience is, patience is definitely a virtue when it comes to whitetail hunting. I mean, like with mule deer hunting, if, if you're hunting in an area and it sucks and you just don't see what you're wanting to see, you just move to another area and you're going to see more deer and you, you may not see what you want. So you move to another area. I mean, you, you, you have the the ability to be mobile and on your feet. Um, but that doesn't necessarily always translate to you seeing a, a, a big buck, but it's, it's definitely totally, totally different. And I mean, for me, I mean, I, I spent 55 hours, in a blind, I had kind of one buck that I wanted to kill. And it was, it was kind of, well, I shouldn't say it was him or nothing. It would have taken a pretty nice buck to, um, for me to kind of, um, stray from my original goal, which was to take that buck and that buck only. In fact, I had a pretty, pretty solid eight point that came in right at first light. And he was right there. Um, I think he, he was really wary, kind of knew something was up. I definitely could have killed him, but, um, you know, like they say, you can't kill the big ones if you shoot the medium size one. So I elected to pass, but it, it, it's tough. And then like Josh said, Josh was referencing a, a guy that we hunted with Tony and, uh, he's from our hometown here. We took a, a group from our hometown. So a lot of these guys were first time whitetail hunters and he, that the particular spot he was sitting in was a spot that one of my good friends killed an absolute giant buck, a buck that was, um, you know, just under 170 last year, a big 12 pointer. And it's, it's one of those sites where you literally will see a deer or maybe two a day. You might have a day. You don't see any deer 
and then boom, right at the end, you had this buck roll in and, and it was kind of the same thing with Tony. I mean, he was having, he was probably seeing fewer deer than anybody and then just had a great, you know, great buck stroll in on, what was it, Nate, Josh, was it the third day, fourth day? Day four. I think it was day four, you know, and so it, it does, it's definitely, um, if, if you're not patient and you stick it out with whitetail hunting, you eventually will learn to be patient. Yeah. Uh, and, and that patience doesn't always pay off. I mean, it, it, it didn't for me this year, but you know, you just never know. I mean, Josh killed, what'd you kill at 10 o'clock, 10 AM on the first day? Yep. 11 o'clock opening morning. Yeah. It, you know, Nate, it, Nate killed in, in the evening. I mean, it's just, you never know. It could be the first day. It could be the last day. And it could, in, in our case, lock, you, you know, you eat tag soup, but. Well, it's, it's, it, you know, it sounds to me, obviously like, you guys were kind of relegated to hunting feeding pattern deer and feeding pattern deer can be especially once you get to november feeding pattern whitetails can be absolutely just frustrating beyond belief because it's it's so hard to predict now i mean you you talk about these early season whitetail hunts especially in areas with ag and stuff you know summer pattern deer and what I've always been told is the the velvet on their antlers has uh, one of the biggest key indicators to the hormone hormonal changes in a deer. And so, uh, when they have that velvet on their antlers in September and early October when they're first shedding the velvet and all that, they haven't gone through the hormonal changes. And they do, you know, what's commonly referred to as summer patterns. And they're a lot more. Um, you can kind of set your clock to them a, a little bit more as long as they're undisturbed. Um, but when, once they lose their velvet, you know, it it depends on a lot of other factors, but as far as the physiology of the deer itself, the buck itself, once the velvet comes off and they break out of their bachelor groups, the hormonal changes puts them, they're ready to breed. They're ready to rut, you know, and then environmentally what's going on in the doe herd and all that kind of stuff ramps that activity up, but they change, and, you know, like to your point, you can sit in one spot for for 50 hours during a week and he may only come feed in that area that you're sitting over once in the daylight. And, um, you know, just that, that becomes really frustrating. That's another reason I think the rut is such an attractive feature for whitetail hunters across the country is because they become more predictable. I mean, they're unpredictable in their general day-to-day movements but they're predictable in the fact that they move more they're more visible and um that keeps you motivated and it keeps you going you know something you said while ago that i thought was worth mentioning mike is you're talking about you go into a situation like you were and you're hunting a really old buck right and and so typically that means big buck as well but just an older buck it's commonly thought that the best time to kill an older buck is actually after um kind of that window of time after the primary rut because that deer's very smart right he knows he's been through the rut five or six times he's been through hunting season five or six times and when he gets desperate is when there's fewer does early on it's almost like he kind of knows there's a ton of does, and there's also a ton of bucks that I've got to compete with. And he, it's almost like he kind of buys his time. 
when you get past that primary rut and now there's only a handful of does in the whole herd that are either going into a second estrus or a late estrus or something like that, he gets a little bit more desperate than he normally would be because there's just less less for him to choose from, so to speak, and he becomes more visible and more active because he's trying to get he's trying to pair up with those last available does or those handful of does that are coming into a second estrus because they didn't you know they didn't get pregnant in the first one or or whatnot so it's you know it's kind of a common thought that some of your tactics rut tactics might change a little bit just because of the change in the overall deer herd but your oldest uh your older more mature bucks can be more visible easier to figure out because they number one are probably very hungry because they don't eat a lot during that period. You know, they're just constantly breeding and following and chasing and fighting and all that. So now they're transitioning and they're they're having to really hammer down calories because um, it's cold weather and, and all those factors. But, but, but the other really driving factor is they're really desperately seeking those final does as the rut starts to tail off. So um, I can, I can, I think you combine that. I think you combine that too. And I think it's a little different in Canada. Cause like I said, I think that the feed sources get covered up and, and these bucks are kind of finished. They're winding the rut down, but they're still looking for a few final does and they're trying to get, you know, they're, they're worn down. That rut really wears them down. And so I think that the, you know, the bait in these cases, you know, becomes more attractive and, and they start to key in on that. And I you know talking with the outfitter too, um, I, you know, he, he said that's typically when they kill some of their bigger bucks too, is, is towards the end of the, the rut, you know, yeah, kind of almost post rut, you know, those deer are hungry, super hungry and worn down. And so they start to hit the bait more often, more frequently. Yeah. Well, the, I guess the cool thing about whitetail hunting and, you know, just kind of focusing this episode of the podcast on whitetail hunting is it's 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 one of if not the primary big game season in in north america that spans such a a large geography and and such a large uh space on the calendar so to speak you know there's you get to a point up there where there's so much snow and you know what we've talked about it kind of it tails off Midwest, the same thing. You come down here, like I said, we're we're still best case scenario two to three weeks away from even any kind of pre rut, and we still have two and a half full months of hunting season, and our best hunting is usually around Christmas, you know, and um, and and so you know for whitetail hunters across the country, like I think there's some common denominators in all of it. But I think the smartest thing you can do, whether you're considering the style of hunting that you guys did in Canada or uh, Midwest where you're hunting a lot of open country ag fields and, you know, like Nate said, you're hunting funnels and travel corridors and that kind of stuff, or even down here in the south where you're hunting big, you know, big forests and thickets and stuff like that, the smartest thing that you can do as a whitetail hunter to capitalize on rut whenever it is in your area is to understand your deer herd because it's been my... It's kind of my observed opinion that the primary factor in in whatever variances is there are between hunting in Canada or hunting in Kansas or hunting in Louisiana, it it has a lot to do with deer density and geography. 
the deer are kind of the same animal, you know, as far as what they want to do, uh, the way they're, I guess, God made them to, to act. Naturally, how they act, they're kind of the same genetically programmed animal, but they, they respond to their environment different. You know, the more deer per square acre, the holding capacity of that square acre is completely different from one place to the next. And so when you get in, a, in an area with an extremely uh, poorly managed deer herd where your buck-to-doe ratio is, is bad versus one where your buck-to-doe ratio is really good, you're going to experience drastically different things. And as a hunter, you have to understand that. And if you want to make the most of your days of opportunity, you need to figure out not only um, how to understand those factors and how to, how to read those factors, but, uh, you know, like, and what I mean by that is, is you, you have to learn what to do in your specific area, but you got to learn how to figure that out because it's not readily available. I mean, it's not just right there in front of you. It's, uh, you've got to be a woodsman in that regard and kind of figure that out. And, um, well, and, and I, and to that point too, Locke, I, you know, a lot of guys, especially guys like us, you know, we we're, we're here in the West, we predominantly hunt, uh, elk and mule deer and other Western big game. Um, but we're all, we've all cut, caught the, uh, the, the white tail bug. And it's something I think we're going to try and do, you know, every year, but for guys like us, we go on an outfitted hunt. And I know you personally work with some outfitters and it, it's kind of funny, you know, our, our outfitters got a, in his, his lodge there, he's got a big white board and there's a big sign on there that says, don't, don't guide the guide. You know, yeah. these, these outfitters, um, they're checking trail cams, they're, they're working food plots, they're working bait sites. Um, they have history with these deer. You know, I know in the Midwest, the wind is a big, big deal. Maybe not as big a deal. I mean, wind's always a big deal with whitetails, but in the blind, we've learned that that, that there's some pretty, pretty awesome scent mitigation. And so it's, it's not as a big of a deal, but certainly, um, you know, there's more containment of scent, but I think that's important aspect to, to, you know, these guides, these outfitters, they know the deer, they know the patterns. Um, they know the wind, uh, typically if you're hunting out a tree stand, wind is everything. And if the wind changes, they're going to most likely yep. recommend you go to a different stand. And so, I think there's something to be said of that. Just trust your outfitter. They, they know what they're doing that it doesn't always translate to, you know, success. But I think the fact that you're um, willing to, you know, put your trust in them and yeah. they know their farms, they know, they know the deer movement, they know the deer herd and they're going to put you uh, generally speaking, I think most outfitters are pretty awesome in that respect. They're going to put you in the best possible place to, to have success. Well, you, I think people that, that do outfitted hunts should should keep this in mind. And obviously there are bad people. I don't want to say it that way. The, the Bad people. There are dishonest people in everything in the world. I mean, th- there are. And you can drive yourself crazy trying to look for those people in everything you do in life. But generally speaking... There's really no value to an outfitter taking your money and not and and not and you not having any success, any level of success. There's no in you you look at any line of business, any kind of business in the world, you know, return business and happy customers equal success. You know, and so when you're on an outfitted hunt, there's uncontrollable situations 
and there may be things that you don't understand that the outfitter's asking you to do in terms of, you know, where you sit and how long you sit and these kind of things. And they may not make a lot of sense to you, but it's not a lot of benefit for him to be just willy-nilly um, not paying a lot of attention or just randomly doing things that um, that that don't at least give you uh, a good chance at success because that's his that's his path to to being successful as an outfitter is for you to be successful. And so I, I think you do have to have a lot of faith and trust in your guide. Um, I think that's a good point that you made. I've, I've shared camp with a lot of people in outfitted situations, and they get frustrated by things that are really not the outfitter's fault, and they start to take, to take the low-hanging fruit of uh, these, these guys don't know what they're doing or they don't want us to kill a deer or something like that. And that, that just that really it logically doesn't make sense. Um, and you don't understand if you're on an outfitted hunt, you're probably in an area that you're not familiar with. And there's probably a lot of factors that you don't, you're not familiar with because you don't spend the time that they do there. So I think that's a valid point, but I, I think in wrapping up the conversation, there's a couple things that I experienced in Kansas that I think would be valuable for people to hear that I think is, you know, I, I mentioned that we didn't have a great hunt. Um, we saw plenty of deer, but you know, I just kind of want to share a few of the things that led me to the opinions that I have of telling you that, uh, you know, the, where the rut was and what was going on. So first of all, it was warm and it was windy. I personally, in, in all of my experience hunting whitetails all over the country, I am of the opinion that there's a certain threshold on wind and deer are a skittish animal. They are preyed upon by a lot of things. And when the wind gets to a certain level, they're just spooky. They don't like moving in the wind too much because it, it mitigates some of their senses. And I've hunted with people in places like, ah, oh, the wind blows up here all the time. They're used to it. I don't think there's a certain level of it they just don't get used to because it affects their ability to smell. Everything is moving. Everything is making noise. And you can see how they act when they are up on their feet. They're way more skittish in the wind. So we had windy conditions, and that affected us. The heat is always... And is always a factor everywhere you go. But a couple of things that we observed in deer movement, and, and, and I'm, I'm doing this as just kind of a, a, a point in the podcast for people that if you go on a hunt and you observe these things, I feel pretty comfortable in telling you um, where you're at in the rut cycle or lack thereof. So when you see groups of does moving early and late, you probably don't have much going on in the way of estrus. When does go into estrus, they leave their fawns, they leave their yearlings, and they leave their doe groups. So when you're hunting and you see that lone doe moving around at 10 o'clock in the morning, you better not get up because she's probably about to come in or close to it. When she's up moving completely by herself at a random time during the day, then that's a pretty good indicator. But if you're seeing that same doe with her two yearlings, on the same pattern, and it's always the first hour of daylight, the last hour of daylight. She's on a feeding pattern. She's with her yearlings. She's not, she's probably not there. And the same thing could be said for groups of mature does. They just don't group up when they're in estrus. Another thing that you want to see to indicate um, rut activity, aside from the physical signs of scrapes and stuff on the ground, is you want to see young bucks and by young bucks, I mean everything from a spike to a small basket rack, two- or three-year-old buck. You want to see those deer up moving around and not really feeding. 
So you want to see that deer pass by you, and he almost looks like a hunting dog. Like, he's working in a zigzag pattern. He's going left and right. He's circling around. He's basically what he's doing is he's trying to find a smell. He's looking for something. So he looks like he's searching, right? Um, If you see a lot of deer moving extremely slowly and just feeding or doing things that are very predictable feeding pattern type activities, that's not a great sign for your expectation of rut activity. Um, Those are a couple of things that we saw a lot of, and it was early on, and I'm like, I'm telling Colin, who's my cameraman in the tree, I'm like, man, we've seen a lot of does, and none of them look like they're going into estrus. There's no bucks. Like, a lot of times you imagine a scenario, this is a scenario we were in, but I think people could logically see themselves in this scenario in a lot of places. You're hunting along a creek or a small river, and there's a food source on one side of it, and obviously you're probably set up so that your wind is is good for wherever the bedding to, to food travel route is. And you're seeing, you're getting into that stand in the middle of the day, and later in the afternoon, you're seeing deer start to pour out into that food source. So maybe you got a cut cornfield on the other side of the creek. And there's, you know, the last hour of daylight, there's 15 does and yearlings and a couple little small spikes, and they're just kind of slowly grazing through that food source. If the rut is, 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 is hitting or just about to hit, there should be something, three-year-old, four-year-old, buck cruising on the downwind side of that food source checking every one of those deer to see if one of them is is got any estrus you know starting to come in and so um when the conditions are right if you're sitting there afternoon after afternoon after afternoon and you're never seeing that but you're seeing the numbers of deer just in that slow feeding pattern that's a pretty good indication that you may be a little further off from rut than than what you're hoping for um if you see a situation where the increase in deer activity, generally speaking, whether that's feeding, scraping activity, travel routes, whatever, if it always is coinciding with rain or some cool down in temperature, but it's short-lived, then that's another indication in my mind that the deer are responding to the weather and not to the rut. And we experienced that in Kansas. We had one day where it rained all day. The temperatures got down around 40, and for about 12 hours, there was, from camera activity to tree stand activity, everything, there was a lot of deer activity. But then it just died again. So it was like it wasn't a triggering event. It was just deer responding to weather patterns. So those are just a couple helpful hints, I think, that if you're on a hunt and you're trying to observe where you're at in the rut cycle, and my, my suggestion would be to you, If you're with an outfitter to do what the outfitter says, if you're hunting, you know, your own property or public land or something like that, when you get in that situation, it's a really a hard thing to do. But if you're you're trying to key in on an older, a bigger, more mature buck and you find yourself in that spot where you're seeing, you know, some of the things that I just talked about and you don't feel like, hey, there's not a very good chance that that four or five year old buck is fixing to just get up at 930 in the morning and come cruising by me looking for a doe because they're just not there. You know, he's not going to come check these scrapes during the daylight. They're just not that far along. You need to try to do – the best thing I can tell you to do in a defined period of time is try to figure out where he's bedding as accurately as you can, figure out the best, best access route to that, and get as close as you can because he's probably not moving very far. And inversely – Well, and then there's always the exception to the rule too, right? You know, 
I had a buddy that was hunting Kansas late October. This, you know, this was this year and he was texting me every day and, uh, um, the hunting sucked and the weather was warm and then it got cold and then it got warm again and it sucked. And then he killed a 170 buck. You know what I mean? It, no, that's, there's always it, a chance. It's so it's so interesting. You think, you think you got these freaking deer figured out and then, you know, I mean, and it's like this, the same, this same stand that I was in this year, they killed a, another giant out of this last year. And he's like, the guy was telling me, he's like, it was about the same time of year, no snow on the ground. And this buck rolls in and the guy kills it, you know I mean? Yep. So it's just, you know, I, I, I think there's, there's always the exception to the rule, but that's, it's just interesting. It's like these deer, you know, they have their own, for lack of a better word, personalities, habits, and, you know, for, you know, they, they, they could, there could be a total lack of rut and these things just decide to get up and, start cruising you know so I, it's, it's kind I, of an interesting the way thing, i but. the way i try to take white-tailed deer hunting is like two of my favorite things in the world are white-tailed deer hunting and baseball those are two of my favorite things and they have a very direct correlation in that baseball is a statistics game if you swing at first pitch curveballs you're not going to be a very good hitter i don't care how good you are over the course of time that's going to average itself out as not a great approach as a hitter you know and in the whitetail woods, there are certain things that you just, they could work, like you said. The exception could happen. And when you're in that situation where you have a defined period of time, maybe you have to hunt the exceptions. But talking about, you know, the overall lifespan or, or season span of a, of a deer hunter, I think, like Nate was talking about with the difference in mule deer hunting, you can't physically push yourself to find that animal and make a plan. You have to accept what's being given you. You know, you just don't have the ability to pack up and go to the next ridge and start glassing and try to find another animal. You have to sit there and work with what's given you. So statistically, learning, you know, learning as much as you can about the animal and trying to make a high percentage, in my experience, a high percentage decision, um, even though it may not work out, over the long haul, um, you'll learn more and you will be more successful over the over the span of a career of hunting. So... Um, yeah, and I, I think Nate and Josh were proof of that this year. Um, you know, they, they both killed mature bucks, and it's just for no rhyme or reason, their their bucks were active, and and mine wasn't. We had a couple other guys as well that had a similar experience to mine. And, and yeah, I think ultimately you just you got you got to be patient, and you got to put yourself out there. And you know what? Like this year, I mean, sometimes you're sometimes it's tag soup, and sometimes you like Nate and Josh, you get her done the first day, and you're back at the lodge, twiddling your thumbs, eating bologna sandwiches, wondering what you're going to do with your life for the next five days while your buddies are all trying to yep. get something killed. But that's that's why they call it hunting, right? Yeah, you just you just never know, and I think that's kind of what makes it exciting too. Yep, that's pretty much the life cycle of a deer hunter. One year. We, we this you know this year after a couple of days in the stand of, of being able to kind of obviously observe that the the situation wasn't great for us we've had some pretty good years the last good the last couple of years and, and Colin um, made the made the comment to me in the tree stand one time he said you know after last year we probably should have expected this because it's just it's gonna be your turn you one you're gonna be the guy that sits around camp and watches TV and cooks for everybody because you tagged out and then 
the next year you're going to be the guy that has to hunt it out to the very last hour and still may not be successful. Yeah. That's that's part of it. But, hey, you know, as far as this podcast goes, it's been a good conversation. We wanted to talk whitetail a little bit because I know that it's a huge um, – it's a huge season that is kind of right in the middle of it all across the country at different phases. And so congratulations to you guys, Josh and Nate, on your your bucks. And I got a long season ahead. Mike, hopefully hopefully you'll find some success somewhere else and get back after them next year. So um, it's been a good conversation. I want to remind everybody that uh, November is a popular online shopping month and Scree's no different. We do a big Black Friday sale, so look for big Pre, uh, not pre, I'm sorry, we're beyond pre-Black Friday. Look for Black Friday deals at Scree.com um, at the end of this month. And thank you guys so much for listening. We appreciate it. Please feel free to comment and send me emails at lock, L-O-C-K-E, at ScreeGear.com. Let me know what you want us to talk about, different guests you might want to hear from. Let us know what you think about the podcast. We appreciate everybody listening. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Scree Country Podcast. search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv